I'm Rob Trzinski. This is Salon of the Refused, where we talk about ideas that are outside the mainstream. My guest today is Kathy Young, a longtime author at Reason, uh, more recently at Quillette, and also a fellow author at The Bulwark, uh, among other places. Uh, thanks for coming on, Kathy. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, now, did I miss anything? I've mentioned the We've Reason been and each Quillette. other for a very long time, so I'm finally doing it like in a uh, chat setting. Exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, the, the wonders of the modern age. Now, I mentioned Reason and Quillette and the Bulwark. Did I miss anything? Because I know you're doing, all, you have fingers in a lot of different pies. Oh, well, I also um, write a column for uh, Newsday every week. <laughs> and I sometimes write for the forward. I mean, I write for a bunch of different places. So, <laughs> you know, we're... Uh, I mean, we could go over <laughs> go over the list of places I write for for a long time, but yeah, you know, yeah. those are the main ones. Yeah, the life of, of a scrappy, independent uh, freelance writer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think we also both used to work write for the Federalist back in the day when when uh, before yeah. uh, <laughs> before, before things went south on that. Yeah, 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 that we did. <laughs> Uh, All right, so I, I wanted to sort of talk a little bit about your background and, and some of which I think is relevant to things going on today. So you grew up in Soviet Russia and came to the U.S. as right. a teenager. I think that must be interesting given today's sort of socialism chic that's been rising up. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it certainly is. Uh, um, I uh, actually think that you know, one thing that I find really fascinating in a sort of depressing way is that there, there really, there, there's things on really both uh, ends of the political spectrum today that really kind of overlap with a lot of stuff, you know, from my former country. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, uh, on the left, it's not just the socialist chic, but also some of the kind of really hardcore social justice stuff, uh, while in terms of, like, specific ideology, it doesn't really overlap so much with, you know, Soviet-style communism, uh, but just the politicization of everything and mm -hmm. the kind of the subordination of everything, uh, especially art and entertainment to ideology, where there's this idea that, you know, all art and all entertainment must reflect, you know, correct ideas. And it's at the point where we actually see, like, articles in the New York Times uh, discussing some new movie in terms of, oh, well, this is really not, like, up to date on Me Too and, you know, other things that should be ideologically correct. And I'm thinking, like, oh, my God, after all this time, I'm back at a setting where suddenly, you know, movies and books and everything are supposed to reflect, you know, ideological correct values and it's, it's really starting to remind me of how you know back in the Soviet days it's not that everything that they published had to be like in line with um, the Soviet version of Marxist ideology because they published a lot of classics you know they even published some Russian writers from the 20th century who were really not like totally on the Soviet wavelength but there always had to be um, an introduction like a foreword uh, by one of the editors that had to explain everything in the proper ideological light. And it, again, like I, I am really reminded of that looking at a lot of culture covers today. So there is that. And there's also, of course, the social and chic. And, it, you know, we, we now see like, a fairly large community of people on Twitter who are openly 
you know, pro-Soviet and who are openly into this, oh, well, actually, Stalin wasn't so bad, okay? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I did not expect to see this, but, uh, you know, and of course, on the other end, on the sort of the Trumpian right, and, and even further to the right, we see a kind of, you know, militant nationalism and personality cult that in many ways is also reminiscent, you know, really both of Soviet Russia, um, which was, you know, after the initial sort of internationalist, uh, um, you know, uh, motif, you know, after World War II, it was, the, the ideology was very nationalistic. Yeah, I think that's uh, something people don't, people don't appreciate that under, under Stalin and later on, how nationalistic and how much of a sort of Russian oh, empire so. the Soviet Union Yeah, was. and it was very much, it was kind of like the, the official cover was, oh, well, like Russia is the great leader of of international communism so but but the 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 nationalism was definitely still there and uh and yeah that is that is very true and um and of course today under putin um nationalism really you know a kind of marriage of nationalism and religion is really the new state ideology uh so yeah i'm looking around and i'm thinking you know it's like uh you know i left russia and now russia came to me in america (laughs) I think I actually wrote a piece once that uh, um, kind of made that point uh, for the forward. And, um, I mean, you know, obviously it's not that bad, but, uh, yeah, I, I'm not saying that, you know, the, the, it really, in the end, it makes no difference that I'm in America. Of course it does. I mean, I, I don't think yeah. we're getting quite to the point where, oh, you know, it's like uh, there, there is no difference between uh, us and the Soviet Union, no, certainly there is, uh, or, or, you know, between us and, and Putin's Russia. Um, but, you know, I do think that it's really quite worrying to see these trends. And and I think what really unites, uh, in a way, unites the two is the underlying collectivism. I mean, it's this very kind of anti-individualist um, spirit. And, you know, where we're seeing a lot of discourse uh, among conservatives where, you know, individualism is now a dirty word and, you know, not not even individualism per se, but, you know, individual rights, like the whole, you know, Patrick Deneen argument is that the individual rights framework of the founding was really a bad thing because it's kind of led us uh, down the path to, you know, downfall. And uh, and, and I, I just find that development to be to be really disturbing, uh, the, this uh, kind of marriage of um, anti-individualism on the right and the left. That, that, that's something I think is really interesting. I think that as people who are more on sort of on the quote-unquote libertarian end, for lack of a better word, libertarian end of right. things, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think we're maybe a little more prepared for that <laughs> because you know, uh, yeah, we're yeah. more prepared for the idea that uh, that there's, you know, there's big government on the left and big government on the right. right. But I think it's a bit of a kick in the gut coming so quickly after what was some people were saying was the libertarian moment oh, yeah. of, of the Tea Party movement when, you know, hey, let's study the founders and talk about individual rights and, and the Constitution uh-huh. and all that. And then now suddenly, no, no, forget about individual rights. You know, nationalism is the thing. It's, it's, it's quite a quick shift in a way. Uh, yeah, no, it's interesting. I wonder how many of it is actually the same people. I mean, I think the Tea Party 
uh, from the beginning, and I think the Cato Institute even did a study of people involved in the Tea Party movement. I think they found this was like back in, I think, maybe 11 or 12. Uh, they found that there was a very strong populist element to the Tea Party as well. And there was a bit of tension between like these two elements. Uh, and I think, I don't remember the specific question that they asked, but I think some of it had to do with uh, questions like, you know, the rights of uh, defendants, especially of terrorism suspects, because yeah. uh, you yeah. found a real tension between, on the one hand, like there there was approximately half, I, th I think, of the people involved in the Tea Party movement who really did have this very libertarian outlook and who really believed in, you know, limited government and um, the, the rights of the individual. And then there was this whole other strand that was basically like, yeah, like, let's get really tough on those Muslims. <laughs> and, right, right. and, well, uh, I, I take a little solace in the fact that I, I do think political trends tend to be, you know, if you look at the immediate political trends like that, they tend to be very influenced by what was the thing that happened last in, in politics. Oh, sure, yeah, so, absolutely. So, you know, the tough on, get tough on Muslims thing, that was because of 9-11. And that was oh, sort of what defined the right and got people together on the right for eight, oh, eight years or so. And then you moved on to, oh, Obama's in office. So any, you know, so you get this rapprochement where if you're against big government or if you're against other things Obama wants to do, you all work together. And now Trump comes along and, and it shifts completely. I think those yeah. shifts are more extreme than what's actually happening with the individual people. Yeah, no, that is true. But, you know, the thing that I find interesting, uh, and I'm sure people will be studying this, you know, for years to come, um, it's not even like, unlike 9-11, uh, unlike there isn't really, like, this time with, with the rise of Trump and the rise of the socialist left, I don't think you can really point to any kind of, like, huge seminal event that sets it all in motion. I mean, if we're talking about, like, the, the, the market crash in 2008, you know, that was 11 years ago. And right. I think, you know, obviously, I, I do think that that has something to do with, you know, the riot back cap. And I think a lot of, you know, there was certainly a kind of shift leftward on economics at that point. And you had like people like Naomi Klein uh, gaining a kind of new following and, uh, you know, a lot of people saying that, oh, well, you know, they've lost their face on the market because, you know, obviously the market cannot, you know, sustain uh, sustained uh, a kind of high level of, you know, economic prosperity and eventually everything will come crashing down uh, but today i think it's just a lot of different um you know a, a lot of different brands of you know collectivist ideologies suddenly all kind of flourishing at the same time uh where you have this sort of radical uh, identity politics on the left and you know i know that there's been some discussion of you know is identity politics a real thing and you know how do you define identity politics and i think you have some people even libertarians kind of defending identity politics by using this really expansive definition that says oh well you know the civil rights movement was really you can call that identity politics because it focused on you know blacks being denied access to uh services and so on so that was 
But, you know, I think that's kind of a ridiculous definition. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if there is a group of people that is singled out for discrimination, uh, it's it's not identity politics to say, look, you know, here is this group that is, you know, forcibly right. defined by its identity and, and you know, denied certain goods. Well, I don't I think, think that's you know, uh, um, I think it was Shelby Steele had an interesting comment about that. He said that, you know, back before the Civil Rights Movement, before the Civil Rights Act, uh, there was a, a collective identity for blacks, whether they wanted it or not. You know, the collective right. identity was enforced on them from the outside for, by the laws and customs. And he says, what, Absolutely. He said the irony is that having limited, been liberated from that, what he saw is the irony of people going back and seeking out right. that collective identity as a voluntary thing. And I think that's the difference in terms of, you know, fighting for the civil rights versus rights, fighting, fighting for civil rights versus voluntarily then labeling yourself as a minority yeah. set of yeah, no, no, absolutely. Yeah, and then, of course, at the other end, you have this the identity politics of the populist right, mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, it's not always explicitly racial, but a lot of times it is. I mean, all, all of this, uh, the kind of the Anne Coulter, you know, shifting demographics as the uh, end of America kind of line of thinking. Uh, Tucker Carlson, you know, the, the, the gypsies are coming to Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah, was, was Tucker Carlson always this crazy? Because I kind of, I had a view of him as being kind of innocuous and, be, and, and a, yeah. a muddled middle guy. I, I don't remember him being like this before. Or was yeah, I just it, not paying it, attention? It's bizarre. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he's he's doing the keynote at this National Conservatism Conference uh, starting on Monday, I guess. Is it Monday or Sunday? I, I just heard uh, about it recently. Yeah, it, it's coming up. Yeah, yeah. I was kind of toying with the idea of going to that and, you know, covering it for someone. But, I mean, I don't know if I would survive <laughs> the whole two days. It's just, you know, <laughs> I'm looking at the lineup. And, uh, um, well, I was surprised yeah. to see Bolton being there because, I, I you know, he's been put down as a neoconservative and, now he seems to be sort of moving with the times to... Yeah, yeah, it's so weird. But, you know, here's my thought, and, and this is, uh, you know, and I really don't want to like, collectively slam everyone who's speaking at this conference. I mean, I know that Yuval Levin is speaking, and I think, you know, he's he's a good guy, mostly, I think. You know, I, I, I like the stuff that, a lot of the stuff that I've seen from him. Um, but, you know, here's my question. So you have this, you know, your... I mean, I think the, the point of this, as far as I know is to create a kind of intellectual foundation for Trumpism, really. Right. It's, you know, get together a lot of people who are kind of into this shift toward, you know, nationalism slash populism, and, you know, really kind of spend two days talking about it and really kind of make this intellectual trend look intellectual. Exactly. Because that's not an intellectual trend. They're trying to turn it yeah. into one as if, you know. Yeah, yeah. but here's so this thing is called national conservatism. I mean, if you're going to like try to formulate a new ideology, would you really pick something that where, where like the, the formula is like a nationalism? I mean, yeah. you know, national, you know, <laughs> yeah, national the, the national blankism thing. National like, somethingism. Yeah. I mean, you know, the precedent for that is not really great. And I'm not gonna, you know, I'm gonna say, you know, I'm I'm. I'm I'm not going to like slip the Nazi label on these people, but it's just, you know, it's really not a great, um, a great label to use, I would think. You it, know, it's, it's an <laughs> ominous precedent. Uh, I also think, you yeah. know, this idea of trying to find an intellectual foundation for Trumpism, it, you know, 
it goes to this idea that, you know, I said the it's not so much that the, uh, I think the, the swings that you see in the political debate may be more radical than what's going on with the individuals. There's a tendency in Washington, especially because intellectuals feel like the most ignored people on the planet, right? <laughs> you know, of course. I, as a writer, I've spent you know, years going out and knowing that I'm going to go out and give brilliant advice that, or what I think is brilliant advice that's going to be completely ignored by the people who are actually making the decisions. So writers tend to get very insecure. Yeah. And there's this temptation, I think, to jump onto the bandwagon to see, oh, there's all this energy going over here. I mean, I know some people, I won't give the names here, but I know some people who were jumping onto the libertarian populism bandwagon oh, during the Tea yeah. Party movement. And now that the populism has become less libertarian, they're going along with that and they're jumping on that mm -hmm. bandwagon. So there's like this, this temptation to find, oh, there's something happening let me jump on the bandwagon and, and, you know, or, or, you know, the band is marching on the street. Let me go out in front and pretend to be the leader. I'm sure that's the case. Yeah. Now, I don't know what's going on in Tucker Carlson's head specifically. I mean, does he believe all of this stuff? Um, possibly. I mean, I, I do think it's, I mean, you're right. I mean, I've always seen him as, you know, doing a bit of kind of conservative fluff, basically, yeah. where, you know, he's doing this chatty show and he's, kind of like this personable guy in a bow tie who's, you know, <laughs> who's, uh, uh, you know, who's being very kind of pleasant and chatty and everything. And suddenly he's emerging as this, um, you know, militant ideologue of national conservatism, which right. is uh, kind of baffling. I know it's... Uh, it's kind of as if Barbara Walters was suddenly <laughs> leading a communist insurgency or well, something like that. I, I, I have to say, actually, that you mentioned that, I felt a little bit the same way uh, after Walter Cronkite retired as an anchor. And suddenly, you know, this is, now this is years and years ago, you know, back right. was in the 80s, I think he retired as, as an anchorman, you know, the America's most trusted anchorman. And it turns right. out he had these sort of wacky far left views that we never knew about for all the years that he was oh, anchoring because right, right. he never said yeah. anything about it. But then, you know, there was a bit of that odd feeling to it. But I also wonder to what extent, you know, you talk about where does all this nationalism and all these different uh, illiberal ideologies come from. I'm wondering if this is sort of like a warning, though, that the real thing is the underlying weakness or the underlying the fact that individualism and individual rights is an ideology that keeps needing to be reasserted and keeps needing to be re-argued for in every generation. You know, this oh, is the, absolutely. It's, it's the Reagan one generation away argument. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I do think that, you know, libertarians, I think, sometimes tend to be a little bit naive about it because there is this uh, kind of belief that, oh, well, the human longing for freedom is going to reassert itself. And, you know, I have to say, uh, I remember reading, I think it was in, in 2005, uh, Nathan Sharansky, uh, mm -hmm. the, the Russian-born Israeli yeah. politician, uh, wrote this book called A Case for Freedom, which uh, became kind of the, 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 the bedside Bible of George W. Bush. At one uh, I think point. it was called, actually The Case for Democracy, but it was, it was a good book oh, sorry, on the yeah, whole. The Case I liked for it. Democracy, right. Yeah, sorry about that. No, so, yeah, The stuff. Case for Democracy, and, and W. was, like, totally enthralled with that book. And I read it, I actually reviewed it for a reason. And I mean, I honestly thought it was um, kind of like 
Pollyanna-ish in its uh, in in the case that it was making, because basically, like Sharansky's argument kind of boils down to like, well, of course, democracy like natural to human beings because every human being wants to be free. Like nobody wants to have some you know superior uh, you know force uh, dictating to him or her how to live. And I thought, okay, well, on one level, that's true. On another level, everyone kind of wants to dictate to other people how to live. (laughs) Everybody at some point feels that, like, the way that his or her neighbors are living is somehow infringing on, you know, like, the environment that you want to create for yourself and, like, the way you want to raise your children. And then suddenly you want to tell other people how to live. And, you know, I wouldn't discount the extent to which a lot of people really do feel that, you know, they want to be led on some level. I I, I mean, I remember actually reading, and I wish I remember who wrote this, uh, but it was a um, Soviet dissident. Um, I don't think, no, it wasn't Bukowski, but anyway, I'm not going to try to remember the name. But it was this autobiographical essay that he wrote where he basically said, you know, like, I absolutely hated the Soviet regime and everything. And, you know, I I was this huge dissident and, you know, I loved freedom. And then at one point he got drafted into the army as a young man and he was already a dissident. And then he said, and like, suddenly... I realized that I was feeling this tremendous relief because, like, for the next uh, two years, I think was the term of service at the time, like, for the next two years, I'm not going to have to decide anything. I'm just, you know, I just do whatever I'm told to do, you know, like, I go to have dinner when everybody goes to have dinner and, you know, I go to sleep when, you know, and so on. And he said, and you really have to be conscious of you know, that part of human nature that really wants to be freed from making decisions. And I think that that is something that we really should not, um, uh, you know, should not underestimate. And I think, you know, I think you have to understand that, uh, you know, I think for most people, it is a matter of trade-offs. Like there's an acceptable level of risk, for instance, that I think people are willing to uh, embrace. Uh, I mean, there's a certain, uh, obviously, there's a certain, uh, for most people, I think that they are willing to, you know, take some risks as long as it means, generally speaking, a better life for them. If that level of risk becomes too high, you know, I I don't think you're going to have a, uh, you know, which is why, by the way, I've always thought, I mean, the the, the issue of terrorism and national security and like what, uh, what measures you allow, this is like post 9-11, especially. Like, how much latitude do you sort of give to the national security state? I mean, I totally understand the libertarian argument. On the other hand, I can assure you that if we had another huge terror attack, like, even close to the scope of 9-11, you would have a huge constituency for, like, gutting (laughs) civil liberties. There's really just no question about that. And, as a libertarian, you can sort of chide people all you want and tell them that, no, 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 you know, you should be willing to accept a certain level of risk of getting blown up as long as, you know, but I, I think that's just not going to sell very well. I think we do have to be aware of that and be realistic. I, I think as intellectuals, though, I mean, you know, the, the, sort of the role of intellectuals and, and commentators in, in a society is to try to even some of that out and think long term and not be as reactive at least oh, absolutely. ideally yeah. we're supposed to I mean, there's a great um, be, yeah. I think it's a Dashiell Hammett the mystery writer from, not mystery novelist a detective story novelist right. from the early 20th century had a 
Sam Spade, one of the stories Sam Spade tells about how he was hired to find a guy who uh, mysteriously disappeared and left his family. And he tracks the guy down years later. He finds out the guy was walking down. He finds this whole story. The guy was walking down the street and a, a beam falls down from a construction site and nearly kills him. And this brush with death causes him to totally question his life and everything in it. And so he leaves his family. He goes off in this series of adventures. But by the time Sam Spade catches up with him, he's living in another town with exactly the kind of job he had before and exactly the kind of life he had before and exactly the kind of wife and everything everything is exactly the same as it was before and he says you know this this guy had this emergency this this close call and caused him to question everything but after a while you know girder stops falling from the sky on him and he settles back into the same rut and i think people have a tendency to do that you know a big event happens and it causes them to go in a different direction and then they revert back and now, for example, I think we've gotten too complacent about national security and this sort of Trumpian isolationism of saying right. we should not be involved in anything in the world is like we've gone overcorrected in the other yeah. direction and you, know, yeah, you need yeah. somebody who's thinking long-term to keep, that, to keep that together. Yeah, no, no, I think you're right. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm at the point where I'm really not making any predictions for the future anymore because, you know, what's the point? Yeah, so somebody asked me, um, what, what would happen if uh, Justin Amash runs for, uh, runs for president? I'm like, well, I can say a few things, but I'm out of the prediction business after 2016. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not going to be Marianne Williamson, <laughs> but, you know, I really hope I'm not jinxing it right now. But although, you know, who knows, Marianne Williamson, and might be even more entertaining than Trump, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, but I mean, I, I think it, it is true that I think a lot of people um, kind of think that you know, let's just get Trump out of office and then everything will be kind of back to normal. I think that's kind of the appeal of Joe Biden on a certain oh, yeah. level, oh, like yeah. oh, like we're going to set the clock to before Trump. I don't think that's going to happen though, because I think you know, he, like. Uh, Assuming that Biden gets the nomination, which at this point does seem to be very likely, although, again, you know, we live in this very unpredictable moment, I don't think that that's going to completely shut down the sort of far left insurgency in the Democratic Party. I mean, I think Biden is going to have to compromise with them. Um, You know, I think that they're definitely here to stay. And there is this... um, I mean, the thing that I find uh, kind of interesting right now is the marriage of the um, kind of the socialist left, uh, which is really primarily class based with the identity politics left, which is basically this intersectional stew of, you know, of uh, all these different uh, you know, identity groups. And uh, that is, uh, I think that's probably something that we're going to see more of. And, uh, you know, and of course, I do think that the radicalization is definitely a mutual cycle on the left and the right. Uh, Because, you know, in a way, I think, I I, I don't remember who wrote this, I think it may have been David Frum, said that, you know, when people look at the rise of Trump and suddenly they realize that, someone who is completely out of the political mainstream, you know, can actually become president, it yeah. really greatly um, like ex- enhances or expands uh, the belief of people really all over the political spectrum that, you know, things that are radically out of the mainstream are actually quite viable. And well, that's my theory as to how we got 24 Democratic candidates. It's, it, everybody's like, well, who yeah. knows? Yeah. <laughs> Why is Miriam Williams here? Because who knows? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so I think it's definitely a mutual cycle. And then, of course, it's also that um, I think um, on the right, uh, when you can point to the wacky left and say, well, this is what awaits you, you know, if you don't vote for Trump. And, you know, if you don't embrace where the current, you know, Republican establishment is going, uh, this is what's going to happen. Like, these are the people on the other side. So I think the radicalization is definitely mutual. And then, of course, on the left, you have people saying, oh, well, of course, you know, uh, I mean, I think in in a way, uh, Trump was really kind of the best Thing that could have happened to the the intersectional left, you know, because right. all the people who were saying, ah, well, you see, you know, how can you, like, at this point, how can you deny that America is profoundly white supremacist, you know, misogynistic, right. et cetera, et cetera, when, you know, they elected this guy who talks about grabbing women by the you-know-what and who yeah. called Mexicans rapists, like, of course, yeah. we're a... Uh, you know, lives up to uh, all their woman-hating, uh, racist uh, societies. So well, I, I think, really, I get it. It really drives the, the like the radicalism. Really drives uh, like the, the opposing brand of radicalism. Yeah, there's a certain symbiosis there, where Absolutely. it's almost like they need each other. You know, the Trumpian yeah. people need the the, the far left uh, campus yeah. totalitarians who are cracking down on speech and all this. They they need them. To be yeah, the bogeyman, yeah. and then those people need Trump and and Trump supporters and the white nationalists. They need Richard Spencer. They need those people. I mean, I'm, I'm in Charlottesville, so I get I, I, we've gotten a lot of this. Ah, you know, uh, so I mean, they need that, Richard yeah. Spencer. So to you're be, kind of at the epicenter of all this. Well, unfortunately, yeah. I mean, it, and it, it, you could tell the impact it had around the town that a lot of people who oh, were radicalized by it, or at least they were given an excuse to say. You know, white nationalism is is on the rise and it's rampant, and we have to all move farther left to counteract it. But I think right. it's and also now you, you have the defense of Antifa by people saying, "Well, of course you need those people who are going to come out and stand up to the Nazis." You right, know, right. And, and I think that becomes the. And then, of course, at the other end, you know, the the, the rise of Antifa is driving the rise of. You know, these groups like the Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer and Portland, right. where things apparently are going completely haywire. <laughs> <laughs> well, well yeah. yeah, so, yeah, Charlottesville may be bad, but poor, at least I'm not in Portland. Uh, but the, a lot yeah. of this sort of brings me to another topic you've been writing about recently, which is the, the so-called intellectual dark web, IDW is the uh, right. acronym used. I, I'm, I'm kind of uncomfortable with the term intellectual dark web. I think it was Barry Weiss who, uh, 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 who, who coined that. And, you know, because it's not a dark web, it's not secret, it's not hidden, it's people with YouTube channels, right? So, you know, it's not like it's hidden away. But yeah, there's this sort of promise of a whole new way for people to talk about ideas that are not necessarily accepted by the establishment and by, you know, uh, especially talking about things that aren't accepted in academia, a way for young people to find these ideas. But at the same time, right. there's some of the same pitfalls of, Becoming more, uh, becoming more radical, or living up—I would say not yeah. even more radical, but living up to the caricature of the other side in response to each other. Yeah, yeah, no, that is very true, and I mean, I've, I have been writing about it. I mean, I have a lot of, um, um, 
I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I, I frequently write for Quillette, which is considered right. to be a kind of the flagship publication of the intellectual dark web. And, you know, I have some other, like, points of overlap with the so-called IDW. I mean, I'm, I'm good friends with a few people who are considered to be, uh, you know, key figures of the IDW, like Christina Hoff Summers. Um, well, and you, you came up, I mean, you, you've made a, a bit of a career over the last number of years about, you know, talking about the campus hysterias and, you know, the so-called right. rape epidemic on campus and the false accusations of race. Right. And also the, the sort of the whole like the social justice warrior right. phenomenon, yeah. whole kind of the rise of campus activism. So yeah, no, I've been writing on a lot of the topics that uh, uh, that you know the the so-called IEW has been focusing on. So I'm I'm sympathetic, but I mean I think that there and I did a piece about this as you know recently for Quillette. Uh, I think that there are several pitfalls. One of which is a kind of, uh, you know, clubby tribalism where, you know, you kind of, you hesitate to criticize uh, people who are fellow members of the IDW even when they're saying something that, you know, deserves criticism. Um, um, So, and I think, you know, all groups that, uh, you know, coalesce like this are probably in danger of developing personality cults you know, like you, you look at somebody like uh, Jordan Peterson, who right, right. certainly has his very, very enthusiastic following. Um, I mean, I think that for the most part, I think people who are counted as part of the IDW have been generally willing to criticize each other, you know, maybe not as much as they should have, you know, in, in some ways. Uh, I do think that there's also the danger of... Um, a kind of no enemies on the right um, yeah. mentality. You know, like there was this... Or, or the enemy by enemy is my friend. Liberals, that a lot of liberals, you know, have a kind of no enemies on the left mentality. Mm-hmm. So, like, even when it comes to people who are either, you know, quasi-communists or actual communists, it's still, the criticism is still going to be kind of muted, and it's going to be like, oh, well, at least their heart is in the right place, even if they're not going about it the right way. And I think you do have a certain uh, tendency among people who are associated with the IDW to show that kind of attitude in terms of, you know, people on the right. Um, I mean, I, I think at one point a lot of them were kind of trying to embrace Candace Owens, who is just, you know, a completely ridiculous figure. I mean, you know, she's, she's a con artist, basically. Well, but I'm, I'm more concerned about people like, like Mike Cernovich and... Uh... Where Stephen, um, I think, is, is another example. Yeah, Stephen Molino, yeah. I mean, I, I think, now, in full disclosure here, I have a vague memory. I might have actually been on his show, like, 12 years ago. You know, oh, thought, yeah. oh he's just a libertarian, right? That's right. <laughs> but, but, he's, but he's gone more from a li- to being just a libertarian to being more of a uh, nationalist and more sort of flirting around with racial theories and things like that. Yeah, I think it's really a little more than flirting around at yeah. this point. I think he's like uh, fully done with them. <laughs> and I think he's said some really creepy stuff about Jews, and I think he's been drifting more and more into that direction. I don't know if you saw that the other day after Jeffrey Epstein got arrested, uh, Molyneux tweeted something about how, like, oh, well, I wonder how many non-Jewish girls uh, Jeffrey Epstein molested. And it's like suddenly we're getting this whole, like, you know, really quasi-Nazi archetype of the sort of lustful Jew molesting, right, and, you know, exactly. 
<laughs> pure and innocent Gentile girls. And, you know, and so, so I think, yeah, he's really, really far gone. And yeah, and I think uh, I've, I'm not going to name any names, but I will say that I've encountered, you know, among people in the IDW, I think there is a kind of reluctance to say, like, yeah, that guy, not necessarily Molyneux, but, you know, the, there's a few other people who are kind of, you know, mm-hmm. A, mm-hmm. around this whole human biodiversity, yeah. uh, you know, uh, set. I think there is a bit of a reluctance sometimes to say, like, yeah, that person really is a racist and a yeah. white supremacist. I, I've come across and this. Because the left has been labeling people yeah. like that far too much, but sometimes you really have to say, yeah, like, this is a bad guy. <laughs> Well, yeah, I've come across that among my subscriber, a couple of my subscribers, and, and you know, people who have, you know, been, uh, I guess, readers and listeners of mine for a long time, where they'll say, "Oh, well, the left," you know, there have been so many. It's like the cry, classic crying wolf effect that there have been so many false accusations of racism that I now just take none of them seriously. And you know, well, there are actual racists out there, and yeah, when you yeah. take this idea, I'm not going to listen to any case against someone for being racist then that's the opportunity that somebody like that wants to basically be able to say whatever they want, couch it, you know, put it into very thin disguise, uh, and, and, and then you stop policing your own side ideologically, and I think that's a major mistake. You also mentioned something I thought was intriguing, which was the um, potential role of crowdfunding in providing some bad incentives here. That, you know, oh, is- yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that is a factor because, you know, if you have a Patreon and I have a Patreon, you know, I have a Patreon, I have a, a PayPal account now where people can donate, you know, that's fine. I mean, I think these days a lot of people have to use that to at least supplement uh, the... And I've got a Patreon too, which I'll be plugging at the end of this. Yeah, okay. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're all there, you know. We're... So, so, yeah, yeah. And that's fine. I think that's a great way to, you know, for people to, um, you know, to, to, to get these new sources of revenue. At the same time, though, I think it does create an incentive uh, where, like, if you know that that a lot of your PayPal or a lot of your Patreon donors uh, are, let's say, you know, fans of Jordan Peterson... Uh, and I'm not saying, by the way, that Jordan Peterson is like, you know, uh, is Hitler and those guys or whatever. Right, right, right. You know, certainly not. But you're, um, you're going to be reluctant I mean, to I criticize him on something. Them, but, but at the same time, like, if you think that Jordan Peterson really deserves to be, like, harshly criticized on some specific point, and yet you know that a lot of your Patreon subscribers are big Jordan Peterson fans... Like, maybe you're going to tone it down just a little bit, or maybe not a little bit. Maybe you're going to tone it down a whole lot because you don't want to piss off the people who give you money. Uh, now, I'm not saying that those uh, pressures are completely unique because obviously, you know, if you're a uh, journalist in a more traditional venue, you're going to have to worry about pissing off your publisher, you know, your editor, oh, yeah. if you know that. You know, somebody like if you're working for a magazine where, you know, like the the editor in chief is a big fan of somebody you want to criticize, you're going to think like, okay, maybe not. Uh, So, yeah, again, I don't want to say that these are completely unique pressures, but they it certainly does create a um, kind of tendency toward a certain level of groupthink. And uh, and yeah, but I think there are other factors, as we were just saying now. Uh, I, I, because the left has been 
practicing, you know, the, this kind of no platforming and you know, guilt by association a lot. Um, and, and there's this whole mentality of, oh, like you've written for Quillette, so, you know, you're a bad person. Uh, so I think there is a push um, among some people in the sort of the intellectual dark web uh, circles uh, to say, oh, well, like you really shouldn't criticize somebody for appearing on a white nationalist podcast because that's guilt by association. <laughs> no, that's really not <laughs> guilt by association is. Yeah, right, right. Uh, you know, I, I think that it's absolutely acceptable to criticize someone for uh, appearing on a white nationalist podcast. I mean, you know, I, 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 obviously there are circumstances where, you know, like if you didn't know what kind of podcast it was, would would you interview Richard Spencer? I'm like, well, in the right circumstances, maybe if you know if you were able to do it as sort of an op, uh, adversarial thing where you're there to expose him or to show him to the oh, world, exactly. you know, yeah. it wouldn't be bad to yeah. interview him. But if you interview him and say, hey, you're well, to choose one example that you use, if you if you describe him as being part of the quote new center unquote, then that's oh, yeah, a lot right. more questionable, <laughs> right? Because that's what Dave Rubin did that with a couple yeah, of guys no, like Paul Richard Spencer, I think. But I think no, he, but with he Paul did Joseph Watson and Paul and New and Cernovich, yeah. which is part of the new center, as I recall. Yeah, and also I think uh, again the, the argument that I've heard as uh, well, you know, what does it matter if you go on a white nationalist podcast as long as you know you're not saying anything uh, terrible? Well, again, it all depends. I mean, you could theoretically go on a white nationalist podcast and push back against their point of view and say, you know, this is why white nationalism is bad. On the other hand, I think the really insidious thing is that, you know, people people can find certain points of agreement. Like, you know, a lot of the time, the, the hosts of a white nationalist podcast, for instance, could zero in on like the white bashing that goes on in uh, a lot of the progressive media. This whole, right. you know, oh, like, white people are terrible. You know, what's wrong with white people, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And like a lot of, you know, tweets. Uh, and oh, New York yeah. Times if, you're, if you're on stuff. Twitter and you're a white person, you get that all the time. Yeah. And I've criticized that. On the other hand, you know, if if I get invited by the host of a white nationalist podcast. Uh, to discuss uh, this really insidious trend of, you know, white people bashing in the media, and I'm doing it in that setting, I am certainly lending support to, uh, you know, to the guy who runs the White Nationalist podcast. Um, it could yeah. go on and say, yeah, this, this is bad, but what you're advocating here is also bad. I suppose you could do that, but, you know, but if you're just, like, discussing the points of agreement... Uh, I think that's really very, very insidious because you're, uh, you know, you, you it's, an, are... it's an implied endorsement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And well, really, and you are kind of mainstreaming those guys because, you know, a lot of the time, um, you know, I, I remember at one point, I, I can't remember who this was, but I was discussing, uh, I think somebody had gone on, uh, somebody who had been on Stephen, Stephen Molyneux's uh, show and I remember, um, it may have been James Damore. Uh, mm. Anyway, I remember asking somebody about this, and they basically said, oh, well, you know, I looked at their guest list, and it looked like a lot of, you know, people who were basically okay, uh, you know, had gone in his interview. So it really becomes a self-perpetuating thing. Like, exactly. the more 
uh, the more, you know, normal people, quote unquote, you know, go on uh, the podcast of some guy with nutty ideas, you know, uh, the more they mainstream that and the more they send the signal to other people that it's okay to do this. So I think it's a very insidious process. Well, it, it reminds me of something I saw recently that uh, I guess Jordan Peterson is going to start up his own social network, you know, sort of compete with Facebook I and Twitter and all that. A social media platform, yeah. Yeah, a new social media. I think ThinkSpot is the name of it. And right. the idea is that there's going to be no uh, nobody will be nobody's platform will be removed. You know, only only a court order from the U.S. government would cause them to take somebody off the network. And I thought okay. he's, he's getting the idea completely wrong because he the assumption here is that the problem with Facebook and Twitter is that they have any kind of moderation or standards. The problem is they have arbitrary arbitrary standards, oh, and, exactly. and that they they moderate badly. But you have to have some moderation because they. I, I'm thinking, you know, this the idea for ThinkSpot. Didn't they try that with Gab? It was supposed to be the, the yeah. pro free speech yeah. Twitter, and within like three months, it was all that white naturalists. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. And, and so I think you know the idea here is it's you know there's been this idea that you know the uh, the left are tyrannical, they're totalitarian, they want to have all this censorship. So our response should be no standards and no controls whatsoever. Right, right. Instead of let's uphold our own standards. Right, right. And I think I mean I would say that uh, you know certainly in terms of the like the underlying principles of uh, you know what some have called the culture of free speech. You know mm -hmm. as opposed to you know the legal uh, standards. I mean I would agree that. Um, you know the uh, the line beyond which you know you you you, you have unacceptable speech, right. uh, so to speak, should really be drawn as narrowly as possible. Because right. I think you know if you're going to have some speech that we consider to be beyond the pale, I do think that for the sake of intellectual discourse, we really should minimize that speech as much as possible, so that you know, obviously. There should be a big difference between, you know, if you talk, if you take like one of the topics that I write about, which is the kind of political discourse related to sexual assault. Um, obviously, we don't want to have, have a situation that's in a lot of progressive spaces right now where it's beyond the pale to say that, you know, women sometimes make false accusations of rape. Right. You know, obviously, that's a bad thing. On the other hand, you know, I really have no problem with saying that, you know, statements like, oh, well, if a woman flirts with a guy and wears a short skirt, she's really asking for it. I mean, yeah, I think that should be beyond the pale. I mean, right. you know, I'm, I'm fine with that. I, I think it's absolutely fine to say that, uh, you know, it should not be a part of respectable discourse to say that some women deserve rape. I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's just kind of self-evident to me. You know, likewise, uh, I mean, I think that obviously there are far too many taboos in discourse on race right now. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I have no problem with saying that uh, oh, well, actually, blacks were happier under slavery is a beyond-the-pale statement. I think it's absolutely a beyond-the-pale statement. I really don't think that we should be relitigating the question of slavery in, uh, you know, the year of our Lord 2019. I think that's kind of ridiculous and, and offensive. Uh, so, yeah, and, and I think... 
you know, there's a lot of um, in in the IDW. I think one of the one of the things that I find. I mean, sometimes it, it, it takes a direction that really does kind of disturb me, the, the whole, um, you know, race IQ thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I understand the argument which a lot of people make that, you know, science is what it is. And, you know, you really have to be like open to all avenues of scientific inquiry and so on and so forth. And if some of it shows that, you know, different ethnic or racial groups have different levels of intelligence, then, you know, we really, really shouldn't have any taboos on that kind of discourse. I mean, yes, I understand the argument from a scientific standpoint. I also think that just given the history of, you know, that discourse, it really behooves us to, at the very least, like, treat very, very carefully in that yes. area. Given, and, given the uses and, to and, which and that is likely to be put. Yeah, and you have like uh, the, the, there was a discussion on Twitter that I saw just the other day of uh, it, it was some you know IDW types uh, talking about how well there's a lot of scientific literature, there's a lot of scholarship that shows that a lot of stereotypes that people hold of different groups are actually accurate. So like stereotype accuracy is actually a well documented thing, and we shouldn't be. Uh, you know, shy about talking about the fact that a lot of stereotypes are accurate. Well, here's the thing, though. I mean, if you look at stereotype accuracy literature, a lot of it is stuff like, uh, you know, like people have accurate judgments on things like, you know, women like romantic movies more than men do. (laughs) So. Or, you know, like women are more, or men are more likely than women to be really into sports. Yeah, okay. So that's like, when a lot of when scholars say stereotype accuracy, I think that's what they're thinking that you know people have a, make a lot of you know correct judgments about you know the distribution of various traits in different groups. But you're going to have a not insignificant uh, segment of the population that hears the word stereotype accuracy and they read it as oh, well, yeah, it's perfectly fine to say that Jews are greedy and, you know, blacks are lazy and shiftless. <laughs> so or, think, or, or, yeah. that, or that uh, Hispanic, or that Mexicans are rapists. Yeah, uh, exactly. To bring it to yeah. current politics. Yeah, where, exactly, you know, to bring it back yeah. to, yeah. Because, so you know, I people think, talk about, yeah. is Donald Trump a racist? And I said, I don't, you know, I don't think the ism doesn't really fit with him. He's a non-ideological guy. I just think he's a guy, he's Archie Bunker with money, right? He's a yeah, guy, nice. he has a guy who has a lot of prejudices yeah. and stereotypes in his head. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah. So I think that this is why when you discuss, you know, stereotype accuracy, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's perfectly outrageous that, let's say, you know, James Damore got fired for writing a memo in response, by the way, to Google soliciting input from employees on, I don't know if you know that, but that was actually about this as part of a Google initiative where they said, you know, we want to hear from people on how to handle diversity. And then James Damore writes this document, which was never intended to be distributed, you know, beyond Google, by the way. I think it was leaked by people who were really incensed by this memo. Yeah. So, yeah, and as, part, and as part of this memo, he says, you know, he doesn't say, you know, as has been imputed to him that you know, women can't do tug job. He said, you know, because of 
you know, and I, I don't think he even came down on the side of whether it was biologically based or not, but he basically said because of the distribution of certain traits in the population, you're going to have more women than men who are, attra- uh, sorry, fewer women than men who are interested in tech jobs. I think he was talking about primarily levels of interest. I think that's a perfectly fine statement. I Actually, don't think he had, saying, I thought he had uh, a very good explanation of it that applies to all these things, which is he shows the overlapping uh, normal distribution curves. You know, so if there's a difference oh, yeah, in if there's a difference in average level of interest yeah. or average skill in something, there's huge overlap within that where the people yeah, where they overlap yeah, is yeah, the differences yeah. are on the margins, which was a great way of putting it into a rational context. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I, I think that's absolutely fine, and I think it's absolutely fine to discuss that. I think it's completely ridiculous that Demore got fired over that, and I think a lot of the discussion and uh, James uh, I'm sorry Larry Summers ran into oh, yeah. the same issue at Harvard uh, some years ago so yeah I mean I think that we absolutely should be able to say that you know maybe you're not going to have the same number of men and women or you know different ethnic groups in every single occupation uh, but you know the problem is that again a certain segment uh, and these days a pretty vocal segment um, of the population, uh, especially on the internet, but also you know in general, is going to take this as a kind of signal to make uh, you know hateful and disparaging comments about you know certain populations, whether it's uh, women, whether it's. Uh, um, blacks, Hispanics, Jews, and so on. So I think, again, you know, it's really not that I want to, you know, deplatform anyone. Uh, but I, I think that there's nothing wrong, really, with saying that, yeah, like, we should be able to discuss, uh, you know, all directions of scientific research. But at the same time, there are areas where we want to treat carefully for both historical and uh, kind of social uh, reasons. Well, I, I think this goes back a little bit to what you talked about, the, uh, the anti-individualism on both the left and the right. That, you know, you right. have to, everything that you have to, de- I mean, the, the left wants to deal with stereotypes, too. They just want to make sure it's all positive stereotypes oh, of, of, of certain groups. Uh, and, and it goes, I think... Uh, the anti-individualism is the most interesting thing. You we talked right about the the rise of the illiberal uh, right, the, the Sorab Amari and the First Things controversy, right. and the Patrick Deneen is the, the author of a book of the case against liberal. I think it's the case against liberalism or something. Like Why that. liberalism failed? Why liberalism failed? That's it. And uh, he's been influential on this. And so there's all these anti the anti-individualist conservatives. The most interesting thing that they've said that I find interesting is they have created this whole mythology where everything that's not uh, where all the different movements on the left are supposedly about quote unquote individual autonomy, that that's the oh, essence well, of the left's yeah. viewpoint. And you know, coming from the yeah. Soviet Union, that must be a real you know a real eye opener <laughs> to you, right? The, yeah, you didn't realize yeah, that no, that, that was... Marxism was about individual autonomy. Yeah, that never occurred to me somehow. <laughs> but yeah, but even if you look at the uh, the social justice uh, progressives today, this is really. Not, I mean, individualism is, is a dirty word for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, they consider, uh, uh, you know, they consider individual rights to be this like insidious smokescreen created by the white man to, you know, oppress all these other groups. And uh, you know, the I, I think the argument is that the, I mean, you know, the, the, there is the, on both the left and the right. You really have this uh, kind of hatred of 
uh, liberal ideology where, uh, you know, the, the, the right will tell you that it's just this uh, kind of radical, um, you know, atomized, you know, vision where people have no connection whatsoever to other people. And, you know, everybody like this basically like a one person uh, desert island, essentially. And, uh, you know, that's uh, uh, the, that's kind of the caricature. Um and then on the on the left, uh, you, you you have this idea that uh, you know individual like liberalism, like Enlightenment liberalism, uh, is just deeply infected with racism and sexism and all these other isms, and uh, and essentially is irredeemable and needs to be replaced with a progressivism that is acutely aware of. Um, you know, identitarian labels. And, uh, and you know, I will say that I think identity uh, politics, un- in a way, I think it's less sustainable than uh, communism was, because I think communism at least, you know, had this clear, I mean, utopian, but clear goal, and had this fairly, uh, you know, well-integrated ideology that wasn't inherently self-contradictory. I think with identity politics, with intersectionalism, because you have all these overlapping groups and really there's um, like which group is uh, kind of the preferred identity group in any given situation I think can be almost arbitrary so in a way I think the the intergroup conflict I think will eventually probably um you know, cause the, the the progressive left to implode. I mean, right now there's a lot of conflict between radical feminists at one end and the transgender community at the right, other. Right. And I mean, that's like that's becoming or the current war going on between Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi, right? Oh yeah, well that's open warfare basically. <laughs> but you know, if they can call Nancy Pelosi a racist. Uh, you know, it, it, yeah, the, the same yeah. technique they use against everybody on the right. They, it, it, the revolution is going to eat its own very, very rapidly. Absolutely, yeah. So, but, but of course, I mean, I, I'm, I'm also curious to see in how and in what ways the Trumpian right will end up, uh, you know, self cannibalizing. Because I, I think that's coming also. Because I think there are a lot of um, different subgroups there. I yeah. mean, you certainly have. Um, a kind of uneasy marriage, where, you know, between the isolationists and the hawks, because you know you get you have John Bolton who is also speaking at this National Conservatism Conference, and Bolton is kind of like the uber hawk, mm-hmm. and you know when you get Bolton and uh, some of the more kind of anti-war, like almost like the paleocon types who are extremely isolationist. Um, I mean, even Tucker Carlson, really. I mean, Tucker Carlson these days is. Oh, yeah. is pretty hugely isolationist so i'm just curious about like what happens when you get bolton and uh, carlson within the same space i mean you know is it like matter and antimatter colliding well, I, I think what it's going to be is a lot of attempts to jump on the bandwagon and use trump as the vehicle for your own ideological agenda and there's going to be right. a lot of people different people with different and contradictory agendas fighting for that you know to be on that bandwagon and and i think once trump himself is out of the picture that especially will, will you know, he's not there to make the decisions yeah. or, to, or to lean one way or yeah, the no, other right. i think they, they really the fight moment, against each other then in the full, yeah in the full at the moment apart. i think a lot of it a, a lot of it is uh is really just coalescing around 
uh, defending Trump per se. Yeah. So I think you're right that when he's out of the picture, uh, it, it's gonna, it's definitely gonna change. But also the the other thing that I find really interesting is that you know conservatives. Um, a lot of the time, and quite rightly, criticize the kind of victim mentality on the left. But then all these, like this national populism is totally a victim mentality because it's all yeah. like, oh, yeah, we have been horribly treated and despised by the elites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? and, and, well, I think a lot of it is defining yourself by what you're against instead of what you're for. Right. And that, that's a really a lot of the essence of this yeah, is that yeah. you know, we're against those elites. You know, they never, right. never, and you know, I'm, I'm described as an elite for some reason. You know, and, and an elite is anybody I don't like. Yeah, I mean, I think these days it's like pretty much like if, if you, uh, you know, if you spell things correctly on Twitter, <laughs> you're an elitist. <laughs> <laughs> well, so to sort of uh, to end with, I, I want to talk about what, and I know that you know, as as intellectuals as commentators, you know, we sometimes feel like we're the last people that anybody listens to. But if people were to listen to you, what do you think is the way we need to get back on track and maybe move the right especially back towards something a little more sane and a little more stable? Right. Well, you know, I would say that um, for everyone, really, I would say that the first, uh, the first thing I would recommend is, you know, stop demonizing each other. I think we really need to, you know, talk to people that we disagree with, you know, without uh, without reducing them to caricature. And, um, you know, I mean, I know that we are all prone sometimes to, you know, caricature the, the, the mm-hmm. opponent. And, I mean, I'm sure I've done that. I've probably done that, like, in our conversation just now. Uh, but, you know, I'm not exempting myself. I mean, I think the general atmosphere of polarization kind of gets everybody caught up in it. And, and of course, you know, we're all to like the social climate around us. So I think we're, we're all probably falling into the polarization trap and I think we all need to do less of it. I think we, you know, uh, we need to, again, like with a few exceptions, like people with really outrageous views, uh, you know, who are either like pro-Stalinist or, uh, you know, or like, uh, you know, white nationalist, uh, David Duke, you know, whatever. Yeah. The, the I, I think and the Nazis. to start looking at people as you know, fellow Americans who have, you know, different views than we do, not, you know, not as the enemy. So I think that would be my first prescription. Um, I think we need to start looking at, you know, evidence-based arguments. I mean, and and I know evidence-based can be kind of a buzzword, but I think, again, we really do need to start looking at the evidence and try to, you know, tap down some of the emotion. I think that, you know, like if we take something like immigration, for instance, which is, you know, which is a huge issue right now. Although, you know, interestingly, if you look at the polls, there's really only a a minority. I mean, it's an extremely vocal minority, but there's a minority of the population that is, you know, extremely concerned with the threat of, you know, the threat of um, the migrants and, you know, the illegals. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I do think that realistically, I think some sort of border control obviously is, you know, is necessary. Um, uh, I mean, I think, I mean, I understand intellectually the libertarian argument for completely open borders. I don't think it's it's viable. Um, but, you know, I think that any um, discussion that we have of immigration, I think, first of all, we again, we need to start t- to stop demonizing groups. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things that really concerns me about 
the the, the you know the, the discourse around um, around migration is the sort of demonization of migrants mm-hmm. because look you can even say like look we're not going to be able to accept everyone who wants to come here we're going to we we do need to vet people you know and so on and so forth uh, I. I mean, I don't agree with the, the kind of economy-based restrictionist arguments because I think they're philosophically wrong, but I don't think they're necessarily racist. So I think we should be able to have a conversation about that. Uh, I think that once you start comparing, you know, people who come here in search of, you know, a better life, essentially, you know, once you start comparing them to either invaders or, you know, conquerors or you know, worse yet to vermin and, you know, and other non-human creatures, I think, you know, that really, really deeply poisons discourse. Uh, I mean, I would also agree that when you start, uh, you know, describing anyone who doesn't believe in completely open borders as a white supremacist, I think that also poisons discourse. I absolutely agree. So I think, you know, we do need to have just a better caliber of conversation. And I think that is... Uh, that is true on both sides. Um, I think that we, uh, and in a way, you know, that's, um, in a way, that is looking at people as individuals. So yeah. really, it also gets us back to kind of principled individualism in our conversations with each other, not only in our philosophy. Uh, so, you know, that would that would really be my first rule of order. Um, and, you know, I think that we... Uh, we obviously need to be pragmatic. I think, you know, no idealistic solution, no matter how well argued intellectually, is going to hold up if you don't get, you, you can't show people a realistic way in which it's going to work. Um, so I think, you know, I think that we really do need a better conversation to uh, to get back on track. And I think we need to, um, uh, you know, honestly confront, um, I mean, you know, I, I, I think that, again, w- w- when you have Trump in the picture, you know, it's this, this personality cult, uh, I think, really does kind of throw everything off track. And I think so much of our conversation right now, and uh, not our conversation here today, but our conversation, you know, in in public discourse on the right, especially, is is really just this completely personal, um, you know, uh, warfare over uh, over attitudes toward Trump. And, yeah, I, I, you know, yeah, the, think... uh, the obsession with never-Trumpers and a lot of quarters on the right, which which I think is kind of well, bizarre. And I, I think it actually goes both ways. There's an obsession with the, with Trump on the right and an obsession with Trump on the left. That, you know, I'm, defining this house as being against whatever he's for, we're, we're against. And the biggest magic he pulled was was getting a bunch of Democrats to be free traders. Yeah, I, I was going to say, you know, I, I think that the, the dangerous thing about Trump is that he really does kind of suck the air out of public discourse. Like, everything becomes about him. And I think yeah, that's... Yeah. And he, I'm sorry, you were going to say, because I interrupted well, you. And no, then, and, well, right? I was going to continue on that, which is that I think the biggest prescription I'd have is more focus on ideas. And especially, you know, I think the, the idea of liberty and then the ideas behind liberalism oh, yeah. in the proper sense... It's clear to me that those ideas have not been focused on enough, have not had a strong enough defense, that all these other things are rising up because that is weak. And I think we need to focus on strengthening the defenses of that. I think that's one of the promises of the intellectual dark web and some of the ways that people have of, of new ways people have of spreading ideas. If they don't get sucked down to these pitfalls of tribalism and of, you know, call to personality or defining themselves in those superficial ways. 
Well, I want to thank you so much for com for coming with me to talk. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm Rob Trzinski. This is Salon the Refuse. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you can follow our podcast through iTunes or Google Play. And uh, you can always find more ideas and analysis at the Trzinski Letter, www.trzinskiletter.com. And uh, you can also support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Salon of the Refused. I'm Rob Trzinski. Thank you for listening.